Hello and welcome to the Behavior Project, a podcast where we explore ideas to help you make better choices and decisions at work. I'm your host Shyam Sadasivan, a behavior science geek and a passionate curator of stories from people doing what they love. In this podcast, I talk about shifts in human behavior, bring in learnings from leading academic research, and offer you practical actions you may consider for yourself. For more information or to get in touch with us, please visit thebehaviorproject.com. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Behavior Project podcast. I'm your host Shyam Sadasivan and I'm delighted to welcome Matangi Jairam to today's episode. Matangi has worked in the private sector for over 13 years and has also worked in the non-profit sector for about 9 years. She worked in one of the largest disease prevention programs in India. She worked with Avahan the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's flagship HIV prevention program in India where she worked across a diverse range of uh, areas and uh, experiences she worked in a public health setting uh, and applied her management abilities from her work in corporate in a diverse landscape that included various geographies various stakeholders in government ngos community groups community based organizations and donor partners i've just been very excited about her experiences and the learnings we can glean from her experience for us back in the corporate world matangi thank you so much for making the time to join me today welcome thank you very much sham uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction i'm both excited and nervous about talking to you uh, because one doesn't really sort of uh, sit and reflect on one's own experience and also nice to have a captive audience in your sham so thank you <laughs> what a lovely way to start matangi let me start by uh, just asking you uh, to kick us off by telling us a bit more about yourself your your professional journey I, i have read about it and and i'm fascinated by the wide scope of work you've done could you kick us off by telling us where it all began sure so i did my bachelor's in botany zoology and chemistry and then made the switch to uh, personal management and industrial relations I did my masters from XLRI Jamshedpur I am from the class of 95 so my professional journey really started after I finished my masters and uh, I joined the SR group as part of the campus placement and uh, I spent a year in Mumbai where I finished one year of management training on the job and uh, I was assigned to SR oil which was one of the you know key groups within the uh, overall SR group and i remember as part of my initial training uh, you know visiting the oil rigs in mesana and kalod in gujarat and seeing how the you know e- extraction process of oil and gas works on the ongc platform so a great start but um, around that time because this whole it boom was happening i moved to bangalore in 96 and uh, i worked with a bunch of organizations i call myself a bit of a rolling stone so i worked with motrola as part of their paging services uh, then with uh, wipro's global r&d division i was part of a startup uh, by island efforts island fs uh, an organization called schoolnet uh, which focused on the k to 12 education and had a brief stint in hyderabad with deloitte consulting and then eventually with sungard uh, a product development company uh which worked on multiple domains like you know higher ed the banking financial services and public sector and throughout these 13 years that i spent in the private sector i was uh, mostly in a hr generalist role um i didn't sort of want to limit myself uh, in any specialist roles within hr 
Now, while I was working in SunGuard, I always had this sort of, you know, if I can call it like an itch to sort of work in the social sector for at least two, three years. And while I was considering on, and mulling over, you know, options that were available then, I had the opportunity to change tracks and move to a completely unfamiliar territory. I got a call from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation when they had begun their uh, Avahan program, like you rightly said, Avahan in Sanskrit means call to action. And 2008, when I got the call, I was sort of, you know, more than mentally ready to make that switch. Uh, so without asking too many questions and, you know, as a person, I'm always very cautious and I weigh the pros and cons of any decision, uh, you know, that one makes and any significant career shift calls for a lot of sort of, you know, thinking through. But now when I look back, you know, it, it was almost like it was meant to happen. And I said a very quick yes and agreed to move to Hyderabad from Bangalore. And uh, the job was of a program officer. And uh, I was supposed to manage the HIV grants in the then undivided AP. There was no Telangana, uh, AP and Tamil Nadu. So I had to move to Hyderabad for the job. What I thought would be probably a brief two to three years kind of an experiment. Uh, to learn about the social impact world. As you can see, it has become a sort of a life changer in many ways for me. So I spent almost a decade with the Gates Foundation. And, you know, I think not only has that experience taught me a lot about HIV, public health, program management in a large scale program, but I think for me, the biggest takeaway is what it has done to me as a person. I think it has changed me fundamentally as a person. And also sort of, you know, given me a worldview, which probably I didn't have 10 years ago. Yeah, so that's the introduction to my background, Shyam. The, the, the crossover part of it sounds, uh, sounds really great. I mean, you said that you are, uh, as a person, quite guarded and quite, you know, take very, uh, think through your decisions. But this was a bit of a spur of the moment. Uh, and you moved mm -hmm. in. Was there, uh, was there an element of uh, transferable skills that you brought in or was it like totally different and you had to start from scratch? How was that experience moving from, a, uh, from this uh, environment to this completely different environment? You know, when I look back, the whole thing, it didn't happen by design, right? So I, I always wanted to quote unquote give back, but uh, never thought I'd sort of get wedded to this kind of work. So I think... Um, to be honest, I, I was at the right place at the right time when this opportunity came, by, came my way and I didn't give it too much thought. It also helped that, you know, I had two very good friends uh, who were working with the Gates Foundation and I had a fair sense of what I was signing up for. So it's not like, you know, I went in blind without having any information about what the you know job required. But um, despite the excitement and having a sense of what the role required of me, nothing, believe me, nothing prepared me for the real thing. So I just wanted to, you know, I, I was remembering a field trip, my first field trip ever, which was more like a road trip planned by my predecessor who was handing over the, uh, you know, AP program management role to me. So she planned a week-long trip that started in Hyderabad. Uh, we drove to Khamam, which is uh, interior Telangana. Uh, and then did a couple of districts in the coastal AP belt. So your Krishna, which is essentially Vijayawada, uh, Guntur, both the Godavaris, east and west, uh, Vizag, Vijayanagaram, and Srikakulam. So the entire stretch, like, you know, oh, I think it was a little over a week that we spent 
but for me to you know actually go to those community groups sit down talk to the sex workers uh you know visiting the government hospitals the phcs interacting with the district officials every interaction blew me away because see much as one reads and knows something about the rural landscape and the challenges hearing it and seeing it first hand and learning about you know why hiv uh is not just a biomedical problem but also a social disease right that hit home very hard for me and for our kind of upbringing typical middle class the kind of schools we go to what we study a masters in a you know one of the leading b schools in excel and 13 years in a very if i can say a very slick kind of a corporate environment nothing nothing really prepared me for those conversations in the field uh so to answer your question in some ways sham is that the role itself was a big challenge to settle into and uh, strangely most people i interact with even today and many of my friends believe that working in the development sector is for those you know who can't keep up with the demands of a tough corporate world uh, and it almost you know they, they make it seem that it's a cop out to transition to the non profit world because it's meant to be very easy to work in that world that apart although we were a very small team we were just about some 12 people when i joined uh, you know uh, the avahan program in 2008 i found the culture and team spirit in avahan extremely competitive very hard nosed and very very focused on delivering impact and um, i mean now i count myself lucky but uh, at least the initial 12 months it was difficult because you know these were very very smart people high achievers you know everybody believed that you know they could change the world uh, so like i said it took me a good 18 to 24 months to you know completely get my hands into the role and to settle into what i saw as a very pacy and very driven culture despite having worked in the corporate world so all of us had a home base so like i told you i was for me home base was hyderabad but we were always on the move with an average of 15 days of travel every month so overall yes it was tough two years of transitioning into a completely new world but having said that i wouldn't change a thing right so all of us learned by we were we used to complain that you know there is no onboarding uh, there is no training on the job all of us are new to hiv but you know there is no uh, systematic orientation but now when i look back we learned the hard way because each one of us as program officers or any of the other colleagues that i worked with each of us were pushed to the deep end of the pool and we learned to you know swim on our own and that's the best way to learn yes the the description you have given me for your transition really uh, hits home very strongly the fact that even if a corporate environment is fast paced and profit driven the mm-hmm. environment you worked in uh, as you said outcome driven right people were driven by the outcomes not necessarily the profit it's not the the, the revenue or the sale that you're making here so even though the outcome is uh, impact over in this part of the world as against say profit on the other uh, part of the world the corporate side of the world the the energy the passion the uh, competitiveness was uh, as at a similar or maybe even maybe even higher level is that right yes strangely yes i mean given the kind of backgrounds that my colleagues came from and and also almost like a naive belief that you know belief that they could change the world i think both put together it was a potent combination so everybody wanted to have impact as of yesterday right to use a cliche 
So yes, I mean, it did seem far more of a high achieving environment to me. You've clearly given me a completely kind of different uh, shift in the way I've thought about this uh, this sector. That's going to sit with me for a while. Thank you, Matangi. So we spoke about how you transitioned and how you felt and how you kind of moved into the role. But let's take a little bit of a step back and could you tell our listeners what Avahan was all about and what was it out to do? Yeah, I think this is my favorite question, Sham, and probably I need an entire day to talk about the many different moving parts that made Avahan what it was. But let me try sort of, you know, uh, simplifying it by highlighting what the goals were. Right. So one was that as a 10 years program, it was meant to be a 10 years program. Second, it was meant to be a catalytic program uh, where a private foundation like uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, their role was to demonstrate a program science approach to delivering impact at scale and to sort of, you know, hand over the program to uh, whoever they saw as the natural owners. At that time, the government of India was seen as a natural owner, but very clearly uh, the foundation knew that, you know, they were only meant to be catalytic. Uh, where because of the money they had access to and, you know, the whole access to program science, the best best practices from around the world, the idea was to demonstrate to the government of India that it is possible to achieve impact in a time-bound duration of a decade and hand over the program back to the government. And third, the assumption was that, you know, this was not meant to be a perpetual uh, program. Uh, As a donor it was meant to be a finite kind of a funding period. So transition was built into the program design as part of the initial design itself. Sorry, these three are not the goals, but these are the three principles that we began with. But the three goals of the Avahan program was one, to build a prevention program at scale. Number two, to catalyze others to take over and replicate the model. And third, to disseminate learnings from the program, both in India and outside. Right. And um, the aim was to help slow down the transmission of HIV uh, to the general population by working with what is called as the most at risk, most at risk groups, uh, which comprises of female sex workers, uh, men who have sex with men, what is called as MSMs, uh, the transgender population and the injecting drug users. So. I wish I could demonstrate or show it to you diagrammatically, but if you look at the most at risk population at the center, you have the bridge population who are the clients of sex workers, uh, mainly the migrants and the truck drivers. They are called the bridge population. They sort of, in a a way, sort of transmit the uh, virus, the HIV virus from the core groups into the general population. So the aim of any uh, HIV prevention program Uh, is to sort of cut the transmission at every level so that you're keeping the prevalence low in any population. So that's what the Avahan program uh, intended to do. And also given that the surveillance data at that time indicated uh, that the transmission in South India was primarily uh, sexual in nature and in the Northeast it was related to injecting drug use, the entire program boiled down to affecting two changes in both individual and collective behavior. Uh, So one was to ensure that the condom use, because one needed to uh, sort of practice uh, uh, protected sex. So making sure that there there was consistent condom use among the 
most at risk populations and which translated to safe needle use among the injecting drug users that was the equivalent and the second behavior change that we focused on was to ensure that there was all these people demonstrate health seeking behavior which meant that they had to go to either a clinic or a government uh, hospital to get themselves tested at least you know once a quarter for sexually tra- transmitted infections stis and eventually a third element was added when i joined at the 5 year mark when the program had finished 5 years that's when i joined and that's when the government of india and therefore program donor program like ours we had to also look at a third behavior where the same set of populations also got themselves tested twice a year to check if they were positive right and if they were positive depending on the viral load they had to go seek uh, antiretroviral treatment so this is what the you know program was all about in a nutshell like i said there are many many complex moving parts but these were the three main goals of the program the first uh, first reflection i have is when you uh, initially outlined it it was a it was an acknowledgement that the program was not a lifelong intervention you had to get in mm-hmm. achieve certain behavioral change which would then sustain and then you would uh, recluse yourself from the situation because then it would be self sustaining would that be an accurate kind of in, uh, capture of the uh, of the intent yes very much so and if that was the intent then you uh, outlined uh, three behavioral changes which is uh, what i'd really like to focus upon today with you the first one i think you mentioned was the use of condoms and you said it was akin to use of uh, needles clean needles or what would be the kind yes. of analogy uh, clean needles and no needle exchange so typically hiv transmission happens among the injecting drug users when the same needle is passed around right so right uh if there is a needle one is that you know i use it only for myself and i don't pass it around and then uh there are some safe protocols around even needle disposal right so right uh, yeah safe needle uses how you would describe the behavior there right so let's use these uh, two examples and 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 dig a little deeper i'm sure our, my listeners would love to understand how these behavioral changes are actually designed and delivered so let's take the needle usage and the use of condoms if i understand correctly the use of needles obviously by multiple people uh, would foster the the, the spread of uh, of hiv and uh, the lack of use of uh, condoms would also do the same so where does that behavioral you could pick either one and help us understand where does the behavioral shift the intended behavioral shift which is you know dispose the syringe or use condoms every time where does that behavioral change start how do you start thinking about such a change and then obviously how do you go and design and deliver it sham i think the f- fundamental thing to start with is uh, awareness about condom use itself right so uh this is where i come back to the kind of populations uh, that we need to work with in india i mean almost no literacy levels right so when you look at the profile of female sex workers uh in the rural hinterland or even in urban cities they are probably not even aware that you know when they have again to use a very it's a technical term uh, a sexual encounter uh, she doesn't know that you know she is uh, she should ask her client to use a condom nor is the client sort of either willing to or he himself is not aware of uh, the need to use a condom so number one is awareness itself so 
So even before any of these, you know, biomedical interventions or what is called as targeted interventions in the HIV implementation uh, national guidelines, that's the language used. Most of the awareness building was your mass media kind of uh, communication, right? So you would see some random TV advertisement or like, you know, when you walk into a movie hall, they have those documentary kind of 60 seconds clipping those messages don't stick really so even if you know that there is something called a condom how many people know that you know there is a correlation with uh, hiv so we had to programs like avahan had to start with awareness building on usage second is to make the commodity available right so in an urban setting where you have a pharmacist or a medical shop these are the very typical traditional outlets, right, where one knows where to go and purchase the condoms. But in a rural hinterland kind of a setting, not everybody has access. So a large part of uh, the initial five years was to actually focus on uh, what is called as social marketing, right? So I think the program, again, in partnership with the government of India, managed to create a lot of non-traditional outlets. So many of the pan shops, um, your Kirana shops, they started selling um, condoms to make it available easily to the clients of sex workers. And there were massive campaigns done. So other than mass media, I think with the kind of populations we had to work with, what is called as mid-media campaigns, right? So one thing that I remember is a lot of our uh, grantees did these uh, Nukkad Natak, where you had the street dances or street plays in the colloquial local language. Yes. That would talk about uh, what is HIV, uh, how one can prevent HIV, therefore why it is important to use a condom. And in a very playful, sort of an easy way, do condom demonstrations. So all these kind of very locally accessible uh, awareness tools and methodologies uh, were required more than just doing some random mass campaign, which may not stick with the kind of people we are talking about. And of course, as in when we started mobilizing these communities into groups, also talking about it in slightly more detail in the drop-in centers. So many, most of these interventions had a drop-in center, like a safe house, if you will, where the women would come, just drop in. What started, started as two, three women coming together eventually grew to most people in, in a radius of five, six kilometers knowing about their drop-in center. They would come, talk about issues. Then you slowly sort of, you know, talk, talk about HIV, then you show these booklets. Again, a lot of these conversations are typically in the local language so that you're able to get the message across. And because they are not literate women, most of these awareness messages, uh, messages are visual. And through games, keep it conversational. You keep throwing back the question at them so that they understand what you're talking about. So messaging was important, number one. Like I said, second was making the commodity available easily. And third, why it was important to insist that the clients should use the condom. What the program actually managed to do is to actually empower and teach the woman how to sort of negotiate. So if the male client uh, insisted that, you know, he would give her 50 bucks extra for not using a condom, we, the program sort of taught her to sort of stand up and say no because she was putting herself at risk and therefore her spouse at risk. So that entire chain, I think women started understanding better. So this is how the entire program was started. And of course, like I said, there are many elements to this. There is a media piece, 
there is advocacy with the government but as far as individuals are concerned this is how behavior change was started what's striking me immediately is if they were completely unaware of the existence of such a thing uh, mm-hmm. as a condom the first you know instance they uh, they learn about it in this case is is quite different to what people like ourselves may have seen a condom for because we are used to talking about it as a birth control device and uh, for 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 this population the very first interaction with the idea or a concept or the thing that the condom is is in the context of uh, disease prevention um, risk reduction so, yes yes risk risk uh, reduction of uh, the spread of hiv which is a very different context in which the exact same thing is being presented to them so i'm wondering whether you have any uh, thoughts or observations on how they received it and uh, how they thought of this thing which was quite different to how we would think about it that's an interesting question sham uh, again there is a little bit of a gender difference in terms of how this is received right so women typically understand this more uh, naturally if you ask me uh, but with men it's always hard for uh, one or two reasons one most of them have grown up understanding their understanding of uh, condom is it's a birth control tool the fact that you know it is also to protect himself uh, for that message to sort of stick and for uh, the male client to follow through actually practice that it's a very tough nut to crack right because the understanding that he has grown up with is that it's only for birth control so why yes. do i need to uh, you know use it here yes with a sex worker that is one and second i mean it sounds a bit uh, sort of uncomfortable to talk about the reason why a man would still insist that you know he would go ahead with a sexual encounter without a condom is because there's a pleasure factor involved so he sees condom as something that comes in the way which is where the woman needed to sort of push back and say that no for me i need to protect myself and in the bargain guess what dude you also need to protect yourself right yes, so yes. i think that kind of negotiation skills was very important to build among the women and and that's the that's the you've you've hit the nail on the head with my with my question really because the way i look at it is if 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 something is a brand new concept to somebody you can guide them towards that kind of uh, desired outcome but if somebody has already has a preconceived idea or a notion about it then what you're trying to do is guide them towards a different view of the world which is mm. uh, much much harder really than than offering a brand new view of the world which is uh, you know a fresh new uh, and the only thing they know so if you're trying to correct or change that uh, behavior or understanding of something that uh, feels like a much harder thing to do so i can see how it must have been uh, harder to uh, get the men to actually understand and appreciate the the the, the different context in which the context uh, the, the condom was being presented to them so the awareness uh, was done through things like uh, you mentioned the nukkad natak which i think directly translates to like a corner play right nukkad is a corner isn't it or a yeah, street street corner yeah street corner yeah. play um and that kind of gives them uh, something that they understand in their context as against a, a mass marketed billboard style or or tv advertisement so so you kind of reach them where they are at and and speak in a language that they uh, that they understand so that awareness of, you know when you cross that stage and and i understand it took quite a while to kind of get there what kind of uh, i'm curious to understand i'm i'm sure the world then kind of split into into two or more groups i mean groups that did do it and groups that didn't right or maybe were mm-hmm. hesitant 
So, uh, a kind of next kind of question to you is, uh, what kind of people did actually uh, do what was required, and what went well with them, and and what kind of uh, uh, mindsets or behaviors uh, the people with those did not actually uh, move forward? Yeah, great question. So, when you say mindsets of mindsets of people, uh, I would like to restrict it to or expand it to four different sets of people that the program had to work with. Right. So, one is the government itself. Uh, so it's important to uh, highlight here that you know we worked with the government both at the national level and at a state level and a district level. So it all started with a very formal MOU. So it's not like the Gates Foundation because we had access to you know large funding or access to the best you know what do I say program science or best practices from across the world. Uh, we couldn't or we didn't want to run a parallel program. So from the get go, from day one everything from the program design to execution to reporting back to actually transitioning the program back to the government it was a very formal partnership which started with signing the mou uh, so we had a mou with the national aids control organization naco uh, so that was the biggest partner for bmgs uh, and the ministry of health and family welfare so these were the two uh, of course naco is a subset of the ministry of health so these were the partners at a national level and as program officers say somebody like me i was the po for ap in tamil nadu uh, my partnership or my interaction would be with the state aids control organization sacs and at a district level are the various uh, the district level ngos and community based organizations they would interact with the district aids control societies and the district medical officers this was as far as the government is concerned government was one partner second was the communities themselves so given that you know from being just seen as the end beneficiaries uh, they became active participants in the program in service delivery uh, how the mindsets changed i think to me the biggest uh, needle movement happened among the communities themselves third is the other donors and other partners including our immediate grantees or the implementation organizations uh the change there and fourth is the general public itself given that you know it, it's been a long standing program hiv if you see i mean a lot of critics will say that you know uh between donors and uh, governments unnecessary money got sort of invested in hiv uh, partly true i would tend to agree but the fact is that i think it created a lot of you know recall uh, and awareness as far as the general public is concerned so in terms of the changes what i would point out is that you know you know at least when i joined when i joined in 2008 the phase 3 of the national aids control program what is called as nacp every 4 years you have a new phase where you know the strategy is different uh, obviously the prevalence data would show you a very different kind of you know where one needs to spend the resources on the investments by the government is very different in each uh, phase so i joined at nacp 3 it was just about beginning and i think that was the high point of the entire hiv aids program in the country so there were multiple programs you know many donors varied impact um there was no sort of robust data there were multiple pockets of data which were telling many different things but sujatha rao uh, she was the director general of naco at a secretary level a very senior officer deputed to head naco at that time i think she did a fabulous job so i mean any sort of commentary on avahan 
uh, would not be complete without talking about the role of NACO and you know what somebody fine officers like uh, Sujata Rao, uh, what she did to the program. So essentially, I mean, to put it in a nutshell, one of Sujata's biggest achievements, according to me, is she managed to rein in so many different programs, so many different donors, and she ensured that you know there was one guideline, right? So there was very well written, which we significantly, when I say we, the Gates Foundation significantly contributed to was to write the guidelines, right? So she made sure that there was one guideline, there was one budget and one data reporting protocol across the country, across all donor programs and government funded programs. And this is when actually the four or five years that NACP3 ran is when we really saw significant impact in terms of the, you know, HIV either stabilizing or declining in some of the high prevalent states in the country. Uh, so that that's as far as the government uh, is concerned in terms of a change. But I really want to sort of spend some time, Sham, if we have the time, to speak about the change which, uh, you know, all of us saw as far as the communities were concerned. So like I told you the last time, one unique uh, aspect about Avahan, which other programs didn't have, and especially the government-funded interventions didn't have, was this whole concept of community mobilization. Right? Could you, so, uh, yeah, could you, uh, could you tell us uh, what, what that means in this context, community mobilization? Yeah, so you know, unlike I spoke about, you know, farmer groups or you know, government government workers coming together as a, they identify with each other as communities. This whole concept of sex workers or MSMs or trans transgenders identifying as a community did not exist you know across a formal program like this it did exist in pockets like you know we learned a lot from uh, this brothel program in uh, calcutta called sonagachi so there you know because there was a ngo called darbar mahila sangam uh, they were working on you know this whole rights based focus to bringing sex workers together so sonagachi is a great example of collectivization which avahan learned from but uh, what it essentially meant was, you know, you form small groups at a local level, which then aggregate to a, you know, mandal or a taluk level formal group, which again, multiple mandal level groups come together at a district level. And then, you know, multiple districts will have uh, a representation at a state level so that the voice of this women get uh, heard on issues beyond just HIV, like I told you. Uh, so... This is what community mobilization essentially did. Get them out of the woodworks, give these women a voice, get them to talk about issues beyond just HIV. And one big, big problem was the violence that this, uh, you know, these women faced when they would stand outside in a public place and solicit customers. Uh, they faced violence from just about everybody, including the police themselves. So in fact, the early data, if you see, you would see that you know the biggest perpetrators of violence against the sex workers and MSMs were the police themselves. So one had to work uh, on violence to make sure that you know the woman didn't feel in intimidated enough to either stop doing sex work because that is bread and butter for her, or to seek services, access to condom, access to clinics. If violence became a barrier, how would she seek services, right? So. Uh, working on violence became a very, very important part of the Avahan program design. And then slowly, you know, from just being beneficiaries, once we started 
hiring the community, the women themselves as peer educators who talk about awareness, who distribute commodities, who will do, you know, take the high risk women among their group for uh, clinic visits. We saw a very sharp uptake of services. I mean, I wish I could show you the data. It's a very interesting graph that when we had non-community people as outreach workers versus community members themselves doing all this, there's a absolutely like a hockey stick phenomenon, right? Where there's a sharp uptake of services. Then we saw that, you know, slowly over a period of time, of course, one had to train them through, uh, you know, some of our very good grantees. These women were able to, because they were now collectivized and, you know, they were part of a group, they were able to build on what we call as the advocacy skills. They were able to go and, you know, represent their uh, issues to the police. They were able to go and talk to the district authorities. Uh, if there were any issues with commodity supplies, you know, condoms were not available or, you know, medicines were not available in the clinics or government hospitals, they were able to go and talk about it to the right kind of authorities and also highlight the kind of stigma and discrimination they would face uh, from the government authorities themselves, but to do it in a very systematic way so that they're heard by the right people. So these are some of the significant, you know, behavioral changes at the community level. And by the time I left, and by 2017, we had sort of wound up all the HIV grants. Uh, there were something like 80 plus registered community organizations with all your formal 12A ATG registration run by the women, the sex workers themselves as leaders. And of these 80 odd uh, community organizations, 30% of the organizations were receiving funding from the government, from NACO to run the targeted intervention. So to me, it's a great sign of you know, legitimacy where the government or any other funding organization is recognizing your sex worker collective as a formal organization and uh, allowing you or rather, you know, uh, considering you as a fellow partner to run the prevention program. And of course, uh, last three years we spent, after we had transitioned the program to the government, a small team, which included me, we continued working only with the communities, not so much on the biomedical interventions. We continued working on financial inclusion, um, which meant how do you teach these women to save? How do you link them to, you know, help them to open bank accounts? How do you actually inculcate the habit of saving, not just opening a bank account, but she should have something to call her money or link her to an insurance scheme use the community-based organization, the CBO as a single window to help all these women get social entitlements and schemes that they are, you know, again, legitimately entitled to as a citizen of the country, continue to build on their advocacy skills and also some semblance of, you know, having governance uh, systems in place. Using a term like organizational development sounds a bit uh, fancy here, but that's precisely what they also did in terms of sustaining themselves as an organization. And, uh, you know, by end of uh, 2017, many of them had managed to build fundraising skills, at least local donations, uh, to do some, anywhere between two to five lakhs per annum. That would at least keep the CBO office up and running, right? So this is a significant shift that I saw as far as the community is concerned. So I'll just pause here and not allude too much to the changes of the donors or the general public. As I told you, general public, I think, awareness about HIV went up significantly. And second, I may be a bit of an optimist, but um, while stigma and discrimination has not gone away completely, but somehow I feel that in the, in the last one decade, 
that kind of squeamishness or discomfort talking about hiv i would like to believe that you know it's no longer the same what it was 10 years ago i'd like to agree with that um with my yeah. limited view of the world uh, i'd like to agree that the stigma of talking about it has definitely gone down i think mean, i can even go back about a decade and even talking about a condom itself used to be such a very uh, strange thing i think maybe there were some advertisements also about you know how men wouldn't feel comfortable even asking for a box of condoms in the in a in a in a store in a medical shop or or whatever uh, it's it, it's definitely very different now i i would definitely agree and you know th- thank you for outlining the entire approach of the program as well because you know you started by saying that the general atmosphere the competitiveness the pace and the planning was not very different to a corporate setting and just l- listening to you over the last few minutes describing this work if you just replace the whole hiv situation and and put in a kind of a corporate goal in there the the way you spoke about the work doesn't seem very different which kind of this one of my biggest very. takeaways today uh, you know in my conversation with you is that the difference may be the outcome here you're talking about an impact which is hiv awareness and uh, reducing the risk of the disease spreading and so on as against maybe a profit driven world in the corporate and not all corporates are like that also they have uh different missions and different visions of uh, how to change the world but the the way these organizations function uh, seem to be quite uh, quite similar and i'd like to uh, take us to the kind of conclusion of our conversation with that segue so if i was to take all of your experiences and then quickly summarize in my head and maybe like three points that i've taken away and i'm going to invite you to add a few to them is if i were to take your experiences and say how what can i take from this large scale behavioral change uh, on such a emotive topic and say how what can i learn from here to go apply back in a corporate setting one of the first things you said was first is about aware, basic awareness what is a condom what does it you know what is the actual use of the thing and uh, what does it mean to you in terms of reducing risk of a uh, of a disease so you know number one step has to be about people understanding what this change or what this thing really is so that is a very strong takeaway for me the other one and which is a very uh, visual memory for me is the uh, nukad natak's the nukad natak yeah uh, and and that, that is a very strong message for me in the sense that we may tend to look at wider scale you know do massive campaigns and so on but ultimately people relate to things that meet them where they are and speak the language they speak so that's another another great message for me to take back into the um into the corporate world and the third is the last bit that you spoke about in with so much passion was the kind of community in itself and almost uh, the, the the kind of social pressure or the social norming around doing something as a uh, as a community if if you know if you are to look after each other and uh, be in a community that generally follows a certain level of norms then uh, this new practice of let's say adopting a condom among that community and i think you even said that that community itself did not exist as a name right um, and almost mm-hmm. like you rallied that uh, whole community around this one thing so those are the three kind of takeaways i felt is there anything more that you would like to give us as as we f- conclude our conversation today on some of the things that you learned from your experiences that we could take away back into the corporate world and and deliver uh, behavioral change in a better manner so you know one can answer that question in many different ways uh, sham but i don't want to sound as if uh, either i'm prescriptive nor pontificating right because as somebody who has seen both sides of the world it would almost seem that you know one is better than the other each one has its own like you know they come from their own space and they operate 
one is purely sort of you know profit driven which is not a bad thing uh, you can have social impact while still making profit i mean increasingly coming to believe that you know that's a great model uh, instead of just looking at you know large grants uh, which are not essentially uh, you know well run but i just want to make one point you know uh, i have been sort of wanting to say this is that uh, i get a little bit frustrated when people describe a corporate career as as a mainstream kind of a work or mainstream job right whereas any shift away from corporate going into especially the non non profit world is seen as non mainstream so i mean this is not my original thought uh, i heard it from you know uh, somebody who heads this wonderful organization ngo in uh, bangalore he made this point in one of the recent meetings where he said that you know it's about time that you know everybody started looking at what is called as non profit work or the so social impact was world as mainstream and everything else whether it is you know your technology or technology enabled services your product services organizations and corporations as enabling what the you know the social organizations are trying to do i mean just the way we are headed where the world is headed uh, whether it is in terms of the environmental changes or poverty or uh, so many other issues i really would like to look at the social impact jobs as mainstream in the new world order with everything else from the uh, profit world more as enablers right so i don't know whether it makes sense at all but somehow i am beginning to feel very strongly about this uh, so just wanted to make that point but as far as learnings are concerned in terms of what one can take back i would like to sort of split it into three levels right at an individual for individuals what i would say is that you know one needs to sort of go beyond the brief i mean organizations sort of define a role uh, there is a job description or a role description but there's nothing stopping you from going beyond the brief and learn to look at the bigger picture it's not about like you know wanting to move to the next level it's good to be ambitious but it's not about your promotion or your pay hike just learn to look at the bigger picture in terms of how does your role why does your role even exist right and how does it sort of sit it, sit with the larger business purpose in mind as far as organizations are concerned i think while you know they keep the focus on profit making if there is some way to sort of you know bring in a bit of a social conscious and i'm calling it compassionate profit making if there is a opportunity to move to that where you're looking at you know environment around you when you, where you're sort of you know strongly wedded to the ethics of doing business uh while your customer focus are you really in, in genuinely in uh, spirit not just on paper are you really thinking of the customer as a end beneficiary and not just pushing your product or service i mean that would be something i would really want the you know organizations to move to and also the entire corporate ecosystem i mean can it be more inclusive instead of being like you know when i think of a uh, my 13 years in the corporate world the spirit or the philosophy is very uh, one way right it's very very top down very directive too many rules too many norms a very telling and selling style of functioning so can this entire world be slightly more inclusive which then you know listens to the voices of the employees therefore sort of you know which can move to a compassionate profit making kind of a concept so i'm going to keep it very high level without sort of getting prescriptive so these are what i would say would be my takeaways or learnings for the corporate world from the non profit world
Fantastic, Matangi. True to form, you have taken my question, lifted up, lifted it up a level, and 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 given an answer that is way more holistic than I even originally intended. Thank you so much, Matangi. That's been a fantastic conversation. I'm sure we'll we'll have many more like this, and I'd love to call you. Uh, over again to talk to me again on this on this podcast uh, again thank you it's been a lovely conversation today thank you so much for making the time to join me no the pleasure is mine entirely sham always nice to talk about avahan because it takes me back to the best 10 years in my uh, career so any day happy to talk about any component that is of interest thanks for your time great thank you bye for now bye bye